Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, Chief Content Officer at Goop. My guest today, known as the godmother of Silicon Valley, is Esther Wojcicki. We'll get to her in just a second. I want to say a quick thank you to our friends at the Diamond Producers Association, who we partnered up with to bring you today's episode. The jewelry women wear is entirely personal, and it's often the story behind the diamond earring, ring, or bracelet that makes the piece all the more important to us. For different newsletter stories, the Goop editors have interviewed women about the first natural diamond they ever bought themselves, or the most special one. Sometimes these self-gifts were a long time coming, and others happened seemingly on a whim. But they all ended up marking a special moment in time to celebrate. Why are we drawn to natural diamonds in this way? I think part of it is that they come from the earth, they're rare and finite, and of course beautiful. And as someone who leans toward minimalism, I think it's also because diamonds are one of the few things that become more valuable to you the more you wear them, because they're timeless. To learn more about natural diamonds, visit realisadiamond.com. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Esther Wojcicki is the author of a book called How to Raise Successful People. She's also a journalism teacher and the founder of the renowned media arts program at Palo Alto High School. And she's raised three extremely successful daughters. One is a professor of pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. Another is the CEO of YouTube. And the third is the co-founder and CEO of 23andMe. So today, we're talking about her formula for raising, mentoring, and developing successful people. Some of it has to do with parenting and how she teaches parents to empower their children to be independent thinkers, and also how to simply step and relax, which I appreciated as a mom. But a lot of it extends beyond parenting and involves something called TRIC, an acronym that Wajiski coined, which we'll learn more about in the episode. 
And I think we all need to think about this. You know, all the young parents in the U.S., or actually worldwide, it's a problem everywhere. What can we do to reassure parents that the world is not as dangerous as they see it? All right, let's get to my conversation with Esther. Well, thank you for being here. I'm excited to meet you. Well, I'm very happy to meet you, and I am excited to be here, and I love your space. I know. We do have a beautiful office. Yes. I hear that the Media Arts Lab is, rivals it in beauty. I would say yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is really beautiful. Every day when I go there, I thank heavens that I'm in that space and not in that portable where I started. <laughs> <laughs> so I loved your book. And it's funny because it's called How to Raise Successful People, and I put it on Instagram, and I just said, please, God, let it not be to limit screen time, because I feel like that's the prevailing parenting line going these days, which it really is not about at all. It's about trick and trust and all of those other things. That's right. That's exactly right. I don't believe in limiting screen time. I believe that the kids should learn to manage their phones themselves. And some parents would say, oh, my kids can never do it. Well, did they try? Right. No, it's true. And I love sort of reading about one, one other part of the book that I loved was at the beginning, how you talk about your own life and you reframe the book, which I think makes it wider than parents, this idea of reparenting yourself and really taking an honest look at what you want to carry forward and what's worth rejecting from the way in which you were raised. That's absolutely right. But you have to do it on the conscious level because subconsciously everybody tends to parent the way they were parented. So if you don't make it on the conscious level, if you don't try and you don't think about it, then you're just going to do the same thing and make the same mistakes, even though you as a child promised yourself you would never be that kind of parent. I know. Isn't that ironic? But what is that? Do you think it's just what lives in the subconscious? Or do you think that because we perceive ourselves as like safer as adults or having status or having a certain amount of success, we think that that's the only way to get there? I think it lives in the subconscious. And then also where we think of ourselves, oh, now I'm an adult, and I would never do that. You know, I know better. But then it's hard because you don't realize that somehow you're reliving your childhood through your child. Mm-hmm. And so you get angry when you probably should have a discussion instead. Right. So that's why I say if you put it on the conscious level, I think that you'll be better off. And because then you can say, oh, follow that acronym that actually I created trick, trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. So you can ask yourself, you know, am I trusting my child? Am I respecting their ideas? Am I giving them some independence? If you're not, then maybe you should, you know, rethink that. And you can rethink it on the spot. It doesn't have to be pre-planned and you're not writing an essay. Right. It's just spontaneous. Right. And you seem to create a lot of room for people and in acknowledging your own mistakes. You definitely sort of pave the way for the fact that parenting is very sloppy and imperfect. That's right. You know, so I made mistakes too. You know, actually my kids remind me about that. <laughs> They're like, mom, you did this. No, that's not right. You, you said something in the book and no, it's not true. You know, <laughs> I remember it differently. So, you know, all parents need to know there is no perfect parenting. No matter whether you were the 
greatest parent or not, your kids are always going to find something that they wish you would have done differently. Right. Like, you know, you gave a toy to somebody else on Christmas instead of to them. Or, you know, you were not there when they won the swim meet. Or there, there's always something. And it's, you never know as a parent what's going to stand out in their mind as something important because to you maybe it was just like inconsequential and trivial right so i mean for the most part i can say at least 51 percent, perhaps more of the <laughs> things i did seem to have passed muster yeah they're okay i mean it's inc- you have three incredibly successful daughters and then you've also raised legions of students i mean how many kids have passed through your class well i think it's over eight thousand. That's bananas. That is crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And and I hear from a lot of them, which is, I mean, for me, it's a gift. Yeah. Because I love hearing from them and hearing what they're doing and, you know, continuing the relationship. And it's kind of funny because some of my students are from the 1980s and now they're parents themselves. And they write me emails about like, oh, my son, he's doing the same thing. I'm making him take journalism. (laughs) And he's really happy. And it's just fun for me to be part of their lives. It's a gift. It's funny, reading the book, you remind me of one of the most formative teachers in my own life, who was a math teacher, a Danish woman who created the school that I went to. And then my childhood has some similarities with your daughter's childhood. I think I, I kind of grew up in this generation. I always called it the generation of benign neglect, Oh, yes. You know? I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was deeply resonant with me, this idea of independence and making your own fun and that boredom was unacceptable. My mother was not interested in boredom. That's right. You yeah. know, you can make your own space. You can make, provide your own fun. And that provides, gives you an opportunity to be creative. Mm -hmm. And if you're always being entertained and always being taken from one activity to another, you have no opportunity to be creative because you're always scheduled. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, you know, parents need to remember. I know they're all really trying hard to be great parents and giving their children all these opportunities to do different things, but they probably should cut it down a bit. Yeah. And, you know, instead of five days of one activity after another, maybe have about three days or two days even, mm-hmm. and let their child come up with ideas that they want to yeah. do. There's so much pressure. And I think, you know, when I was a child, when I think about my own mother, she's just not like what you would call a maternal person. And I feel uh-huh. like even at that time, there was sort of the, the this idea of what it was to be a mom. Right. And in what I perceive, and now being a mom myself, is that that has evolved to only become more pressure-filled. And when I go back to my own childhood of benign neglect and certainly not being overscheduled, we definitely had extracurriculars, but it was not the way that it is now. Right. It's funny, I feel guilty. Like, I, I feel like I'm doing a service to my children, but at the same time, I also wonder if they will be able to compete. Well, I think you're not alone. (laughs) I I think a lot of people, a lot of young mothers feel guilty. They don't know what to do. Yeah. And I think the best thing for them to do is just to be 
follow their gut. Mm-hmm. Be a good mother. You know, hug your child. You know, make sure that they don't force feed them. That's another thing that happens. Yeah. And don't give them food every time they're crying. Mm-hmm. Because what that does is set up a pattern that every time you're emotionally upset, you want to eat. Right. And so you you have to remember, as a parent, you're setting patterns that are going to last for a lifetime. Yeah. And you just, all you have to do is just be there and, you know, be loving. Yeah. But you don't have to provide a smorgasbord of activities every day. Nobody is grading you on, like, all the extensive activities and, like, what did you do on the weekend and all these pictures you take and post on Instagram or wherever you post them. Yeah. So I know you've written this book, sort of, you have three grown daughters. They Obviously, they have incredible achievements in terms of what they've been able to do in the workforce with 23andMe and YouTube and UCSF, but they also seem incredibly well-rounded. I have never met any of them, though hope to someday. When you were parenting and they had yet to become, even though they seemed to be actually very high achievers when they were children, did you feel confident that it was all going to work out or did you have self-doubt? You know, I did not have self-doubts once they went to school, to be honest. My theory, and it was just a theory because I had no books to prove it and I didn't have anybody else to talk to about it. My theory was if I can teach them to be as independent as possible, as early on as possible, teach them so that they could protect themselves, you know, One of the things that I spent time teaching them is all the different names of plants, botany. Now, that sounds kind of crazy, but I wanted to make sure that they knew that all the plants had names and that some plants were poisonous. Yeah. And that you don't want to get next to the poisonous plants. I taught them how to swim early so that in case they fell into a pool, you know, they would know how to recover. They watched Sesame Street, which is where they learned their letters. I never really did a letter training program. But then I would point out street signs and say, oh, here's the sign of, you know, this is El Camino Real, and this is uh, Stanford Avenue. And so maybe they couldn't read, but they could recognize those signs. So why did I do that? I was like, well, I want you to know where you're going and mm-hmm. where you are. And back in those days, of course, they memorized their phone number mm-hmm. in case they ever needed the phone number. So... What ha- what I it turned out was that I was empowering them, and I didn't realize how important it was that I, that I, what I was doing, but I realized that they were really self confident, and it was because they felt like they could handle their environment, they felt in control, and when they weren't in control, and I see that in or I saw that in some of their friends. And they ended up sort of having temper tantrum. Mm -hmm. And I think temper tantrums are a very assertive way for a child to say, I want control, and that I'm feeling completely left out, and that I don't feel like I can manage my environment. And so if you can teach them to talk about it and give them a sense that they have some control of their life, even though, you know, maybe their control at 18 months is, you know, controlling the animals in their bed. Right. They... You get along better, and you're developing this sense of autonomy and a sense of, you know, I can do it, which is 
was my goal. Yeah. It's funny because it's, and you talk a lot about this in the book, and I'm so glad you bring up Steven Pinker because I love his book. It's so optimistic and it's so important to look at the data, which suggests that the world is, for the most part, aside from the environment and mass incarceration and issues like that, that the other measures of are getting better in terms of safety, et cetera. Because culturally we need... Women need support, too, I think, in giving their children autonomy. I mean, the stuff that I did as a kid, riding horses, like, in mountain lion country when I was little by myself, or riding (laughs) public buses. Where was this? In Montana. But it was was culturally normal. Obviously, now, I can't imagine allowing my children. One, I would be shunned. Well, one, it's illegal. You'd be arrested. (laughs) But I think it is important to determine, like, to teach your kids how to be safe. And I think I was safe, but but I think culturally we need to be more supportive of parents allowing their children to have independence and autonomy. I agree. Yeah. I think we're too fearful. And so I know I have a friend who, after reading the book, decided she was going to let her kids walk down the street in New York City to the bakery. And it was literally a block away and before that, she was afraid to do this. And her kids are a seven and six, I think. And, you know, they just walked down the street. And, and it was fine. And she had a, they had a good experience. But she was very nervous. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for most parents. They're afraid. But if you look on the streets of New York, I was just there. There's a lot of people there. And everybody seems to be, you know, doing their own thing. And it didn't, I didn't see any... Well, maybe I didn't look carefully. I didn't see any predators lurking about. Right. Especially during the day. And this, you know, seemed pretty nice. Yeah. Also, I think that the laws don't support this. So there are states that have voted in laws saying that, you know, you they're the anti sort of free range parenting laws mm-hmm. that say, no, you can't leave your child and let them take a walk even a block away by themselves. And I think it's a result of social media that's, pro- they're pro- well, they don't promote it, but they publish stories that, you know, bad things that happen in different parts of the world. And it could be, you know, one-tenth of or one-hundredth of one percent of the people. But then it's a big story and you read it and mm-hmm. they're like, oh, the world is really scary. Totally. And it's the opposite of Steven Pinker mm-hmm. and his philosophy and his statistics that show the world is really a much safer place. Totally. It's just that, you know, years ago when I was growing up, I mean, I, I walked to school for three quarters of a mile by myself when I was six. Nobody thought that that was unusual. No. Every, we all did. And today people are just afraid to do that. And I don't know if you read that story in the book about I let my granddaughters go to Target. Yeah, I love that story. (laughs) Yeah, they were like eight or nine, and they wanted to buy school supplies. And I said, oh, well, who's the best expert on what to get for school? Hey, you guys are. You know. I don't know because, you know, I'm not in that grade. So I dropped them off at Target by themselves, and they went shopping. And then I said, well, just phone me when you're done. And then in the meantime, my daughter called me. And she's like, how are the girls doing? How's the shopping trip? I was like, well, I just dropped them off and left them there. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, you did what? (laughs) It's like, yeah, they're there. She's like, 
oh my God, that's so dangerous. How could you have done that? It's like, you know, the last time I checked Target, it looked pretty safe to me. <laughs> Actually, I love Target. All the good things they have there. I like all those stores. Yeah. But I think she was also caught up in the same concerns. Yeah. And, you know, since that time, fortunately, I was able to drop them off at Stanford Shopping Center by themselves. Now I, I passed that barrier. <laughs> Did she feel like she was imperiled in her own childhood? You know, no. She was, at the age of six, she was riding her bike a mile away to go to a swim club. Yeah, exactly. I, no, she, I think she's also been impacted by everything, the media. Yeah. Like, we've all been impacted. Totally. And I think we need to rethink that. I think we all need to read Steven Pinker's books and see that the world is actually a safer place. Absolutely. And, and we want to empower our kids, and we can't empower them as long as we are helicoptering over them and making sure. Actually, I changed the helicopter thing a little bit to the snowplow parent. Right. You know, they clear the way. Yeah, of every obstacle. Of every obstacle. And then you're like, oh, yeah, you can go to the store. I've just made sure everything's clean and, you know, there are no problems. And yeah. no, I mean, how do you expect kids to learn to cope with life if they're always going to be overprotected? That's right. And, feel, and to feel proud. I mean, I certainly felt good about my ability to handle a horse and saddle a horse and run wild in the woods with my brother and go to Safeway to buy myself some potato salad after school. In retrospect, I can't imagine allowing my own children to do that, but it sure felt good as a child to feel like I had some control. So you're a young mother. So the question is, what can society do to help you feel more relaxed and be able to give your child more more freedom, a sense of independence? I honestly feel like I could, except that if I, if I allowed my six-year-old to take my three-year-old for a walk, I, would, I can't imagine that someone wouldn't drive them home. I think you would be arrested. That's yeah. part of the problem. Yeah. I think you could have an eight-year-old take a six-year-old. Right. But I don't think you could have a six-year-old take a three-year-old. Right. But I think even the eight-year-old with a six-year-old would raise eyebrows. Totally. So, I mean, I think we all need to think about this. You know, all the young parents in the U.S. or actually worldwide, it's a problem everywhere. Yeah. What can we do to reassure parents that the world is not as dangerous as they see it? Right. Because when you talk about trick, trust, respect... Independence, and compassion, collaboration. No, collaboration. Collaboration and compassion are both relevant there. Yeah, and then kindness. Yes. But trust and independence without freedom, it's hard to create that. It is. It's really hard to create that. Although you can set up opportunities for trust and respect around the house mm -hmm. and on vacations, for example, or I was just thinking around the house, you know, if you trust your child, for example, to make their own breakfast, most people won't do that. I mean, they can make their own breakfast easily by pouring cereal into a bowl right. and getting some milk out of the refrigerator. But I think there's a lot of people that still feel that they need to do it, make sure that their child's getting a you know, well-rounded diet. Yeah. I think we need to stop this safetyism is what I've coined it recently. We want to always make sure that they're always safe and they have the best and they're always happy. And the responsibility for happiness 
is really with the child. Yeah. You provide the opportunities for them to do a variety of activities, but then it's for them. They, they have to have some responsibility. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Just a second, we're taking a quick break. I believe that jewelry stores energy and emotion, and that certain pieces of jewelry can carry subtle messages with them. I think about this with diamonds, which are, of course, such a symbol themselves in our culture. At the end of the day, natural diamonds are really gemstones that nature has been creating and forming and shaping for billions of years. They are inherently rare and finite, and in their DNA is a pretty incredible history of the earth, which is one reason why it's important that they're recovered responsibly from the earth. When you hold a natural diamond, you're essentially holding a wonder of nature in your hand. And I like that diamonds become more valuable and meaningful over time. They're durable and they never lose their brilliance, which is not the case with most things in life, right? I think this is all part of what makes a diamond a compelling gift to give yourself. Whether that's to celebrate a life milestone, like a birthday or a new baby, or to mark the beginning of a new job or relationship or the end of a significant project, or you know, just because. To learn more about natural diamonds, visit realisadiamond.com. Regardless of the occasion, I'll be happier if I'm in sneakers. Weirdly, this is a lesson that took me a while to learn. Comfort is the most important factor, especially in a shoe, which is probably the main reason we like Allbirds sneakers. They are insanely comfortable and really lightweight. They have a streamlined design, come in a lot of different colors and silhouettes, and go with everything. For all the sustainability enthusiasts out there, Allbirds are made with materials like ZQ certified merino wool, FSC certified eucalyptus fibers, and carbon negative green EVA foam. For everyone else, what that means is Allbirds cares about the environment. And they make shoes that are really versatile, style-wise and otherwise. Their wool runners are great for long days on your feet, and the tree breezers are the kind of flats that you'd wear straight from work to drinks. To get your own pair of Allbirds, or a pair for your kids too, check out allbirds.com. Okay, let's hear more from Esther Wajiski. It's interesting because beyond parenting three successful daughters, you've touched the lives of so many students, right? And had sort of stage interventions, I would say, in terms of some of these, some parts of trick. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fair. You know, it's interesting as you say that, So one of the revolutionary things that I did was I moved the control of the class from me to the kids. So I have five editors-in-chief, and they run the program. And most other 
journalism programs, the, the advisor is in charge. And so you have to ask, how exciting is it for kids to work for an adult? Mm-hmm. Isn't it more exciting for them to work for their peers and work together as a group? And I think it is. You know, they love doing what they're doing, and it's because they feel that they own the publication. Mm-hmm. And they do. I'm the, I'm the legal advisor, and I have a co-advisor, Rod Satterwhite. And together, we basically are the legal teachers involved in the program. But the kids, they do everything. They assign the stories, come up with the story ideas. They monitor when the pages are done. They, they do it all. And why do we let them do it all? Because it's empowering. Yeah. And then that empowerment not only goes from the journalism class to their other classes. They have a sense of, well, I can do it. Mm-hmm. I'll work with my peers. Uh, I can figure it out, no matter what it is. And so that, I think we need to, in the schools, give our students more of an opportunity to do peer-to-peer and self-learning in all subjects, including math and science. You know, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that you turn over the whole program to them. It means that just to start, how about 20% of the time, let them help teach each other and mm-hmm. come up with projects related to your subject. Totally. I think it's empowering. And I think it, it's, you mentioned this in the book, but our whole, the way that everything is modeled where learning somehow ends when you're 22, unless you go on for medical school or a PhD or some sort of master's program, like how, inst- like we need to be lifelong learners and how do you instill that? And obviously I think you do it by allowing people to drive the car that's right. I love this line. It's it's one of your students, Ben, who you talk about in the book, who sort of broke a massive story, local story in the paper. Yes. Because this seems like the perfect, everyone calls you wa- Woj? Woj. Woj. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty funny. And through it all, Woj was there, never so far away that I couldn't ask her for help, but never so close that I felt compelled to do so. And that seems to be sort of the perfect, in my mind, like such a beautiful image of parenting or guiding in any way, sort of this assurance to your children that you're holding the net, but that they should feel free to walk the line. Maybe that's too menacing, but... it's exactly right. Yeah. So they're in charge. I'm the safety net. Yeah. And I'm there. I'm always close by. And no matter what, they can email me or call me, or if I'm in class, you know, just talk to me. Mm-hmm. Or if they're doing research on a story, that was a very controversial story. Yeah, I'm there to advise and to tell them, you know, which way to go. And I always try to give my students a lot of opportunities. I mean, even in the summer now, I got a request from an international newspaper that asked if I had students that wanted to write stories about international issues. This was just last week. And I said, sure. And I sent out an email. And sure enough, there were like 10 kids who wanted to write stories. This is an international paper. It's great. It's called Fair Observer. Mm -hmm. And they are interested in, in having stories written by students. And my students are thrilled to be able to do it. But that's one of the things that 
I try to do is like, you might be 16 or 17, but I'm telling you, you can do it too. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do the research. You can, you are empowered. You can do it no matter what. You don't have to wait around till you're 25. You can do yeah. it now. One thing that I think is also really interesting, and it's this paradigm that you're destroying, and I think mothers like my mo- mother were as well, which is this idea that everything needs to be so effortful. And I know, I think at various points in the book, you talk about some of your peers, particularly maybe earlier on in your career, before this method that you were attempting was proven, calling you essentially like so hands-off that you're lazy. Or probably in your parenting, people accused you, I have no idea, of being lazy. It's something I hold against myself because I tend to not be all over my kids. But I feel like that's another really problematic model that we have in our society that's like you have to micromanage you have to be like if you are not then you are not pitiful but not earning your you're not doing your duty yeah you're not doing your job that's absolutely wrong because when you're doing that what you're when you're micromanaging what you're doing is disempowering your child Mm -hmm. because they feel that they need you in order to do something And I always wanted my children to realize that they could do it on their own. And if they needed help, I was always there. I was always a safety net. Mm -hmm. And the same thing in school. I'm always a safety net or my co-advisor. He's always there. But they are in charge. And that, that sense, all you have to do is feel in charge in one area of your life and then it spreads to other areas. It's mm-hmm. like, if I can do it here, I can do it somewhere else. Yeah, It's really important for parents to realize that being lazy for them or like not planning some activity for them on a Saturday morning is not a bad thing. Let them plan. Let them spend the morning doing whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be some organized activity with a play date, you know, going to some fancy place. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of parents, a lot of parents put that pressure on themselves. Right. And what I'm trying to do is say that, you know, maybe you can do it a little bit, but maybe you should cut back, you yeah. know, and give kids an opportunity to be to do what they want to do. Let them do some research themselves. You know, they all know how to be online. You know that, right? So let them, let them do some research about what it is that they would like to do this weekend. You know, what are the activities in their area? You don't even have to tell them how to do it. They'll figure it out on the, that phone and ball. So just give them that opportunity. But right now we always think we're in charge. Yeah. And oh, there was one other thing I wanted to say, and my classes are very large. 60 to 70 kids per class. And that basically prevents me from micromanaging. Mm-hmm. I can't, you can't micromanage that many kids. It's impossible. And I think that it would be great if teachers realized that giving kids some independence in the class and you have maybe a bigger class, it's okay. The kids can learn. You, you know, you're, it's not like the scaffolding's gone. It's not right. like the structure is missing. It's just that within that structure, they have more autonomy. Yeah. This alternative school that I went to through eighth grade that this Danish woman started, we had rights and responsibilities, and we had no, there were no rules. And we'd call teachers by their first names, and you, there was a certain amount of accountability built around these rights and responsibilities, which were really privileges. Right. And I 
it reminds me of that moment in your class that you talk about at the beginning when you were being surveilled by the principal oh my God. That for was not controlling your classroom and yes. then making your students complicit in turning towards the front of the room whenever the principal came in. That's right. Yeah. But I can imagine as a student how liberating and fun that would be because it feels like, and you would know better, but that in the wake of, or in the face of trying to be controlled, right, by your parent or a teacher, children have probably have two responses, right? You either rebel or you implode. Right. And neither seems great. And the ones who implode, that's more of like the tiger mom tiger performance mom. model. Right. Just you're operating out of fear of disappointing your parents and losing their attachment. Right. How do you calm parents who are understandably very stressed about their child achieving what maybe they've achieved or surpassing their own achievement. So one of the things I do, and I I Xeroxed it, chapter three of David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. I advise all parents to read that. It's called Big Fish, Little Pond versus Big Pond, Little Fish. Mm -hmm. So what that basically means, is it better for your child to be in a fancy Ivy League school where they're actually at the bottom of the heap. They're Mm -hmm. a little fish. Or is it better for them to be in a school that's not as well known where they're the big fish? Well, the research shows that the best place for them to be is be the big fish in a little pond. Mm -hmm. And so all the parents that are frantic and pushing themselves. They have to stop and ask, like, why are they doing that? And what are they doing? And how does that make their child feel? Because how you feel about yourself is the key to your success and your happiness in life. Mm -hmm. If you always are checking left and right and making sure that everybody else thinks that what you're doing is good, what about you? Aren't you thinking about what you think is good? Why are you doing what they want you to do as opposed to what you want to do? Mm -hmm. So what I do, I have like a little can talk, (laughs) I guess after all these years, (laughs) about that I try to help parents who are concerned because their child did not get into an Ivy League or their child did not get to be editor-in-chief or their child, you know, somehow is failing. I was like, you know, honestly, they're going to be just fine one of the ways that they're going to be fine is if you believe in them. I mean, that's what James Franco said when he wrote the introduction to my first book, Moonshots in Education. He said, one of the things that I did was that I believed in his dreams as well. I believed he could accomplish his dreams. Mm -hmm. And I didn't set up his dreams. He set them up. But then I believed in him. And he wanted to be an actor, So all those parents out there, I wonder how would they feel if they heard their child wanted to be an actor? I think most of them would be panic-stricken. Right. But it's important to believe in whatever your child wants to do, you know, provided it's not hurtful. They're not going to hurt themselves. They're not going to hurt society. It's It's not dangerous. It's not illegal. It's not against the law. Then, you know... Whatever, if they want to be a marine biologist, you know, whatever they want to be, you know, see whether or not you can't support them. They want to be a musician. Of course, you know, I think it's probably the same 
reaction to being a actor. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is like, oh, do you want to try something else? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, they might try to be an actor for a while and not be very good at it, or at a musician and not be very good. They'll come to their own conclusion. Right. But what's great is that they tried it. Yeah. I mean, in James's case, not only did he try it, he's wildly successful. Right. He's a great actor. He's just a renaissance guy. He's very good at everything. And you, um, I think in the book, you you say that when it came to your own kids and that my parents were the same way, it was just important that they do something. Oh, yeah. They have to do something. Yeah. I mean, they can't just sit home and do nothing. That's right. not allowed. Right. You know, I don't care whether they're babysitting like one of my daughters did or, you know, if they have a job. Another one of my daughters, she applied for a job during the summer and she ended up being in charge of all the garbage trucks in Palo Alto. Amazing. And, you know, I thought that was good, you know, logistical training. I don't care, just something. Yeah. But sitting home watching TV or playing games or whatever, that is that is not something. That is not pulling your weight in the world in some way. Yeah. My six-year-old wants to be a YouTube influencer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Let me tell you. Your six-year-old could be a YouTube influencer at a much younger age than you ever imagined. I know. Just I, I'm waiting for him to be discovered. He gives I amazing you, tours of our house. I want you to know some of the most amazing videos I have seen on YouTube have been done by little kids. I know. Honestly. I'm, I'm not crushing his dream at this point. No. I mean, one of the kids I met in Brazil, it's a little girl. She does a cooking show. And she sets up the whole kitchen in her house and does, and then has records herself cooking. So cute. And it's so cute. She does it in Portuguese, and then she does the whole thing in English. And I was like, my God. And she was like nine. I, I was really impressed. I think that those are the kinds of things that if your kid wants to do that kind of, it doesn't hurt anybody. If anything, it it's great. It yeah. shows creativity, critical thinking. Totally. Know. No, and I think I liked... I know, strangely, in some ways, tech figures not prominently in the book, in part because it's like part of the fabric of our lives now. And I, I do think it was your family vacation, right, where you just allowed the kids to set the limits and they yes. were incredibly strict. Yeah. So actually, we've done that since that time. Yeah, that was a vacation we took in Napa with all the kids. And there were at that point, I think there were nine of them or yeah, eight of them or nine of them. And we let them, well, first of all, we decided we're spending a lot of money here going to this fancy place in Napa. And all the kids are on their phones. It's like, that is really crazy. Well, we should just stay home and let you be on your phone. Why would you want to do that on a vacation? So the general sentiment was, I'm going to confiscate those phones. They were running around. It's like, no, 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 don't confiscate the phones. Why don't you let them come up with a policy themselves? What do you think What do you think they will come up with if they come up with a policy on controlling them, their own phones? So we said, okay, there was, that was a compromise. And they all got together, a little powwow, you know, sitting there for like half an hour or so, maybe an hour. And then they came up with the rule that they wanted you know, to follow while we were on vacation. And the rule floored us. What they decided is no phones at all until 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> oh, and I was like, oh, really? <laughs> is that true? <laughs> okay, we'll accept it. <laughs> 
Did you guys abide by the same rule? Yeah, well, that was the other thing. <laughs> they wanted us to abide by the same rule. And I was like, okay, you know, if they come up with that and we're on vacation, we should abide by the same rule. Yeah. And so, yes, we all did it. 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., no phones. It's amazing. And it was great. And now, you know, we have dinner together once a week or twice a week. And the policy is no phones, and nobody brings a phone. Well, sometimes the adults, I'm sorry to say, might violate this policy. Exactly. It's and they're like, the oh, adults. I have an emergency. And their answer is, uh, is there an emergency during dinner? <laughs> <laughs> So just to bring it back for my final question, since people are so, I think, not strangely, I get it. It's, again, I went to an Ivy League school, so it's convenient for me to say that it's irrelevant. I do sort of feel like it's never been relevant in my life. But surveying all of your students, many of whom you're in touch with over the years, how does it have any bearing on their trajectory in life? And like, does it matter? Does it, or do you think that, and what you've observed, college degrees are becoming even less relevant. I think what you learn in college is not just the degree. Mm-hmm. It's you learn a lot of social interaction skills. You learn how to get along. You're exposed to all different kinds of subject matter that you might not have been exposed to otherwise. I am not convinced that where you got this experience is as important as people say. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in uh, California, we have a community college system. If you go to a community college, they have no entrance requirements there. Anybody can go, and it's free. And you get a B average for the first two years. You get automatic acceptance. You don't even have to apply to the University of California. You can go to Berkeley, UCLA, San Diego, any of those schools. It is, it's a great way to do it. And the kids that I've seen that have come out of that system or, you know, small schools and all over the U.S. have done just as well Mm -hmm. as the kids who have come out of the Ivy Leagues. I haven't seen a drastic difference. Yeah. I think it's, I think we're conditioned as humans. It's always like, what's next? How do we secure our future in some way that's, feels provable. You know, I think many people feel that way about getting married, right? Like they're like, I'll get to the wedding and then it's cake. Whereas life does not work like that, you know? Right. No, it's, I think it's important to have what I call social capital, Mm -hmm. which be able to meet people that are in positions that maybe they can help you or connections But you can do that at conferences, Mm -hmm. and you can do that in all sorts of locations. You don't have to do it in just schools. Yeah, you do it online now. You do it online. There's a lot of opportunities. I mean, LinkedIn has a lot of opportunities to meet people that are in similar Mm -hmm. areas that you are. But even if you want to meet them in person, there's so many opportunities to develop social capital acquaintances, or develop your social capital, I should say without necessarily being in the same school. So while you might want to go to a school for a particular subject area, maybe they're the best at teaching physics or the best at teaching, I don't know, English literature or whatever, that might be a different reason than going there just because of the name. Mm -hmm. And so I would like all these parents to relax Mm -hmm. and to realize that that child they have it's going to be just fine. 
And even if they are not potty trained at three, no problem. I've never... <laughs> I you don't know never, many adults who use diapers? I don't know any adults <laughs> that use diapers. I don't know about potty training as the topic of a cocktail conversation. Yeah. I just think that the potty training and sleeping through the night and, you know, putting your clothes on that correctly, by the way, not backwards. Everybody learns to do that. And so if they can just relax a little bit, then they'll be happier. I want all the parents to feel better. So I went to this baby education class after my first with this woman, Tandy Parks, and who's amazing and very wise. And one of the moms was concerned that her child wasn't walking. Many of the kids were not walking, including my own. And Tandy just looked at her and said, I can promise you that not only will your child walk, but someday your child will even drive. <laughs> and, as yes. you, and, and you won't remember when they walked. These things are so immaterial. It is so immaterial. And yeah. I think that that's why if, if they can just relax, you know, they put those ages out there to give you sort of a, a yardstick of like a roughly what age are they going to be uh, walking or talking or whatever. But, you know, there's a lot of variability in that. And so it doesn't really matter. And also with reading, mm-hmm. you know, some people are like, oh, my God, in first grade and she still can't read. And in second grade, she can't read either. You know, she knows her letters, but that's it. Do you know that the kids that score the highest in the world in Finland, mm. Finland's number one on the PISA test in the world, they don't even start school till seven. Right. So maybe we can, you know, relax. Your kid maybe just wants to play. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, they won't want to play that way when they're 18. <laughs> so let them have a chance to play now. Thanks for listening to my chat with Esther. For more on Esther, check out her book, How to Raise Successful People. And this is one you can pass on to your teenagers if you have them. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.